name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we come tonight with grateful hearts for the gifts and graces you give to us. And as we celebrate this Feast of St. Benedict, we thank you for this opportunity to come and to continue to reflect on the great mystery that is the, that is the liturgy, that is your work. And we pray that we would be able to reflect also tonight on the, the offertory to help us to learn how it is that you have offered yourself and for us to do so in imitation. We ask this through Our Lady's care as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I have a big hardbound book, so I feel like I should do like story time with Father. Yes, please. Um, so, listen up, kids. It's an exciting story today. <laughs> um, but I'm using this because the, the, it's got a it's got the, the prayers and things in it um, pretty easily defined. Um, and it's always just good to try new things. So, um, so we're, we're going through the offertory today. And so the offertory uh, being, being the portion of Mass uh, where immediately following the creed, the priest uh, turns and says, Dominus Fobiscum. Uh, up until the prayer of the, the secret, uh, praying to the secret, uh, after which comes then the, the preface and the preface dialogue and the consecration. So, the canon with the consecration. So, we'll kind of go through, uh, we'll go through that, and uh, that's the part that, that in, in a lot of ways is kind of, um, there's, there's a great deal of importance to it, a great deal of mystery but it's also the part where the priest is uh, the quietest. <laughs> uh, that's, you just kind of, you see things happening and the altar boys are going back and forth and the you know, father's kind of doing various gestures and things. And at some point he says, Arate Fratres. And you're like, all right, we're done. You know, let's kind of keep rolling, right? Um, and so, but there's, there's a great deal that's present there and a great deal of things that for us to be able to pray with uh, as it's going through. And so, uh, Again, to uh, just to be able to, to provide this place uh, for uh, a bit deeper reflection on it. So, uh, to begin with, uh, again, it begins with the Dominus Fobiscum. You know, the priest turns around after the after the credo, or if there's no credo, immediately following the gospel, he'll go return to the center and and uh, turn to the people and make the address. Uh, but it's what's interesting is is um, at the majority of, of of the points of the mass, when the priest says Dominus Fobiscum. What, what follows next is the, is the prayer piece, right? Uh, so, you know, there's these, these, at the beginning, you have, you have the same, you have the collect that follows at the end, you have the, you have the same, you have the post-communion. But here, you have, you have the Dominus of Obiscum, and then you have an antiphon, which doesn't seem to make sense. Because you're like, let us pray, and then we're going to sing a song instead. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of a strange, a strange thing, but it's what, it, what it's pointing to, what it's, what it's actually... Uh, conveying is the fact that, that the Dominus Fobiscum points to let us pray and that a lot of action happens in the midst of it. And the prayer that corresponds to the Dominus Fobiscum is the secret at the end. Uh, and so, you know, this, all those things are kind of part of 
the let us pray um, aspect of, of that preparation of preparing our hearts um, as indeed the, in the various orations, uh, the, the Dominus Fobiscum is kind of followed by an injunction to, to pause for a second and actually, actually pray. Uh, so I like to, to lift up our hearts to the Lord, to be able to speak to him in our hearts. And so uh, the Dominus Fobiscum here uh, points towards the end of the offertory rather than just the next sequential prayer. Because what follows next is the antiphon, the offertory antiphon. And so Father, uh, at low mass, you know, Father, Father says that aloud at, at sung mass, at high mass, uh, it's, it's sung. He, he, says, he says it quietly, but the choir begins to sing, right? And so the choir will have the, the antiphon, and the antiphon, of course, would be, would be a verse, uh, would be the um, a response in a verse. And so often, uh, as, with, as with each of the, the places where the psalm is indicated in the liturgy, historically, it would be a full psalm. So the whole psalm would be chanted. And the, the, the offertory, the, there would be a procession. And so simultaneously, uh, things are happening. Uh, they're being gathered up. For us today, we have the, the understanding that after the Dominus Subiscum, you know, there's, there's these you know, collections are being taken at Mass and this kind of thing. And so uh, in the early church uh, and still in the contemporary church in some places, the offertory consists uh, of, of money. So, you know, we have the collection baskets and that kind of thing, a common practice. But it was often the, the common thing that, that when you were, your offertory, if it wasn't financial, would be kind of in-kind donations. Uh, I raise chickens. Here are my eggs. You know, I have, I have cows. Here's the youngest one. He's, um, he's, all, he's all ready to go for you to take him home or do whatever. We have, we have uh, milk cows, so here's some milk, right? And so whatever it is that you, that you possessed, you know, if it was animals, if it was grains, uh, these kinds of things at appropriate seasons, the farmers will bring, you know, we've, it's apple season, here's a basket of apples. And, and so um, these things will be taken up. And, and it's, again, it's not commonly seen uh, here, uh, but I've, I've definitely seen it on mission trips in South America, uh, Central America, where they come up and they're literally bringing you like, here's a, here's a bucket of coconuts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks for your coconuts. <laughs> you know, set it off to the side, you know. And so people literally, like, it's, it's still a practice in some places. You just kind of bring what you can. And if, you, you know, if, if uh, money is not your, your standard currency at that place, uh, you bring what you can. And, and typically, that is, you know, because the priest may not be getting a salary there. So in part, it feeds the priest. But also, it's for the priest to be able to bring to, to the people in the community who he knows need food. So this, this offertory takes place. Uh, and that's what would be happening when the antiphon would be sung, as the offertory people would be bringing up the gifts, being, bringing up whether it's money, whether it's animals, whether it's grains, and certainly the bread and the wine. All of these things would be brought in the procession uh, as the antiphon would be, would be sung, and they would be received, uh, received at the altar and offered to the Lord. Of course, all the non-bread and wine things kind of being set off to the side in the sacristy or whatever the case may be. Uh, but uh, so we we don't see that in the traditional mass very often, but it is something that that was uh, very much part of our part of our history, uh, and so but it's it's presented or it's still it's still present uh, in some uh, very kind of minimized fashion, and the fact that the the bread and the wine are on the credence table off to the side, and they're brought up to the altar. So it's kind of the um, a distilled version of the of the, um, the offertory procession. 
where it's brought from, from the table representing the people to the priest, to the altar, uh, to be offered. And so, uh, so that's what's happening when the, when the, uh, the offertory antiphon is being, <coughs> being sung uh, or said in the short form. Uh, would be that, that gathering of things to be able to present to the Lord. Because having gathered all the stuff together, we turn to the Lord uh, and we give it to him. And so uh, for us liturgically, immediately following the antiphon, while all these things will be gathered and, and essentially brought forward, uh, would be the removal of the veil. And so after the antiphon, the priest pulls off the veil and the server, ring, ring. Um, and so uh, that's in part to let people know that you can be seated because we're going to proceed with the offertory stuff now. Uh, but also it's, it's an invitation, uh, not just to be seated and wait till the next bell to stand back up, uh, but it's an invitation to be able to, to be seated and, and, and to reflect, uh, as well as to enter into the mystery of the offering that's being made. And so uh, we acknowledge that, that the Mass is, is the holy sacrifice of the Mass, that it is the, the sacrifice of Christ himself, it is the offering of Christ himself, and seeing and, and being able to pray with at various times the different, the different images in the moments of the Passion and the life of our Lord. Uh, here is an opportunity when the veil is removed, a calling to mind of the stripping of the garments of Christ as he was uh, about to be crucified. So the veil is removed as the stripping of the garments, um, as, as indeed the, the body is, is first seen at that point. The, the host, uh, the bread, is, is seen for them for the first time, which will shortly be offered um, and, then, and then consecrated. Uh, so the offering is to happen Shortly thereafter, just as our blessed Lord was stripped of his garments and then offered for us on the cross. So uh, the priest will take, uh, he'll remove the veil, uh, set it aside. The server will ring the bells, a, a recognition that, that the offering is about to happen. And then the, the bread is brought forward if they're extra ciborium, you know, the, for, the, for the altar breads, um, those are brought forward. And placed on the altar, the priest will put them in the appropriate space. And then the offering itself, uh, the offering of the bread will take place. The sushi besangta pater. And um, the English translation of that, uh, which may be, I don't know which, uh, I don't know where they, where they pull the translations of this or if they made their own translations for it. But uh, the sushi besangta pater, so the priest uh, takes the... He takes the, the paten, the little, the little gold plate um, with, the, with the large bread on it, the large altar bread, the priest host, uh, with that on there and holds it before his eyes and looks, raises his eyes to heaven and then brings them back down uh, as a sign of, of kind of looking up to the heavens, you know, as our blessed Lord did when he was, when he was doing it at the Last Supper, but also um, when he was at, um, at John 6, you know, he, he looks up to the heavens and, and, and prays to the Father and breaks it, etc., and so the priest first looks up to the heavens from whom these, these uh, great miracles come uh, and then brings his eyes back down um, in humble recognition of, of just the, the mystery taking place. And then he prays the Sushipe Sancta Pater, which says, Receive, O Holy Father, almighty and eternal God, the spotless host, which I, thy unworthy servant, offer unto thee, my living and true God, for mine own countless sins, offenses, and negligences, and for all here present. Also, as also for all faithful Christians living and dead, that it may avail both for my own and their salvation unto life eternal. Amen. So he says this and then makes a sign of the cross with the whole pattern and places 
places the, the bread, which is now a host because it's been offered to the Lord, places the host upon the, uh, the corporal, the large cloth in the center of the altar, which receives the body of the Lord, called a corporal because it's a large white, white cross or a large white cloth um, that is to receive the corpus, the body, Latin corpus. So the cloth is the corporal, the, place, the, the cloth that receives the body of the Lord, place where the body of the Lord rests. And then he takes the patent and slides it kind of under under the edge of the under the edge of the um, the corporal. So the patent uh, the the plate is half hidden under it, uh, and then continues on. So a little explanation about about a few of those pieces and parts. Um, one is is about the bread itself. Uh, of course, we, we acknowledge that uh, that bread doesn't just grow out of uh, out of something in the field. It's not like it can just Kind of walk down the street and there are hosts growing out of the out of the shrubs or anything, right? And so you have to, it's the acknowledgement that the grain is is many grains that are that are crushed, uh, that are consumed in so many ways. They they are consumed um, and then combined to be able to to make the one bread. And so this is the the fact of of all of us the, the call for unity in the church to be able to to know that that unity in the church to to have oneness requires of us that we be crushed in self will. And self-interest and self, you know, selfish thinking; these kinds of things, uh, so as to attain that generosity that allows us uh, to be for others. And so that's the the first piece is just the the bread itself, and um, and also with the um, with the bread that it's uh, it's unleavened bread. Uh, we know this uh, in part because of right the Last Supper, whenever the Jewish. When the Jewish people went out in the Exodus to begin with, they went and they didn't have time. It was just, all right, pack everything up, we're going. So they didn't have time to, to put yeast in the bread, and it was just kind of bare bones, a bare bones escape strategy in so many ways. And so they only had, uh, they only had unleavened bread, which was then used for their sacrifices and offerings uh, to be able to, to go out to the Lord. And so it would be unleavened bread that would have been used at the Last Supper, and also, uh, so for us to, to be able to use unleavened bread also in the sacred liturgy. That said, the uh, a lot of the Eastern rites will use leavened bread, uh, and there's there's a whole theology and reason for that um, that I don't I don't know all the details of, uh, but I do know uh, why we use the unleavened bread because <laughs> I'm a Roman and that's what we like. Uh, so it's uh, again it ties to the Last Supper, but also it's, it's the reminder that. Uh, that St. Paul, you know, that uh, St. Paul and our blessed Lord speak, speak of casting out, you know, cast out the old leaven of malice and wickedness, right? And so, you know, also the, that uh, our Lord tells the disciples, beware, beware of, the, of, the, of the leaven of the Pharisees, right? And so, you know, when we, when we hear about leaven in the scriptures uh, in the New Testament, uh, leaven is always seen as a bad thing. Uh, and also because leaven... Um, you know that that yeast that that it rises whenever things are are lukewarm. It's not too cold. It's not too hot. So only only when things are lukewarm does yeast do its job and leaven, right? And so we we want to not be lukewarm, so that yeast would would do something in us. Um, but rather we want to be uh, we want to be as Christ told us, either hot or cold, right? To make our choice. So leaven had you know the the leaven the yeast would have no place in us. It would have no use in us. Um, and so cast it out. So. That's why we have uh, have maintained the unleavened unleavened bread for us for the sacred liturgy. 
continuing, let's see. Um, the bread is often, uh, it's referred to as a host, right? And so the, the host is a common, a common thing that we say, uh, and it's from hostia, which means the, a sacrificed offering. Uh, and so the, it's a, whenever we, like there's a Eucharistic theology, and that's why whenever people, let me get on my soapbox here for a second. In some churches, they will, they will have um, positions for extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, and they will describe them as, you are bread one, you are bread two, and you are wine one, or you are wine two. And when I have been at such places, and they have said such things, I was like, if anybody is distributing bread or wine, I have failed to do my fundamental job here. And they just kind of look at me. And I was like, because it is Christ, his body and his blood. Let's use good terms, y'all. Uh, they just kind of like, okay, whatever, right? But there's a, there's a theology in the words that we even use. To say this is the host is to say this is a sacrificed victim. This is... Like, this isn't just a piece of bread. This is, this is an offering. This is something where, where God himself um, is present here and is being offered and has been offered. Uh, and so that's uh, just even the words we use are, are incredibly important for us in understanding the significance of what it is that we're doing uh, in the Holy Mass. And so host uh, referring to the, to the bread after it's been consecrated. So before, it's altar breads. Breads for the altar. They're consecrated for that particular thing. There's no other use for them. There's no other purpose for them. Uh, and so they're altar breads. Whenever they're offered, when the priest says the offertory prayer, then they become hosts because they have been offered. And then soon they will become hosts with a capital H, Christ, right? Um, and so we have this, this understanding of the, the kind of progressive, uh, progressive movement there with the liturgical active things. So I mentioned also that the, the priest, he holds, up, he holds up the bread as he's, as he's praying on the patent, and then, and then afterwards he makes the sign of the cross over, over the, the corporal and then takes and then kind of lays, the, lays the, um, the host onto the corporal and sets the patent aside, a little plate underneath the corporal off to the side. And what that is, it's a reminder that, it's a visible reminder that what we're offering is the same thing as as Calvary, that this is, this is the cross. Like, it doesn't look like it, but this is the cross. Uh, that's why oftentimes uh, you'll have the, the hosts, uh, the altar breads, whenever they're, whenever they're made, will often have uh, a cross or the, the Cairo, the P with the X on it, which is Greek for Christ, uh, or it will have an image of the lamb stamped on it, or will have an image of Christ crucified. Usually that's larger larger celebrant hosts, you know, can have something of that, of that kind of detail, or some will, some will have the IHS, which is Jesus in Greek. Um, and so what's, what's often printed on it, uh, in, the, in the host where there's a printing, or some kind of impression on it, uh, is an indicator that this is, that this is Christ, that this is, to be, this is to be our blessed Lord by virtue of the Holy Mass. And so um, the, the host itself, contains that, as well as the sign of, of uh, moving it over the altar in the form of a cross is to, uh, and to set him down. Placing the host, the host on the corporal is also um, like a reminder just of, of also, because we don't have to always think about things being only a single thing, but also our blessed Lord um, who came among us, who took on our flesh and was wrapped in swaddling clothes, 
That's our Lord came, he comes to us on the altar. It's like a miraculous incarnation is present there. And where does he come? Wrapped in clothing, right? Uh, so there's cloth that, that is present there to receive our Lord, just as, as on his first night on earth when he came to us to take on our flesh. Um, so also we, we have in the sacred liturgy the same cloth to be able to receive him and to embrace him. Um, so the, then I said the, the next piece is the, the pattern being hidden under the side of the, the corporal. And uh, that's, at, that's at low mass or, or, or sung mass where there's not a deacon and a subdeacon. If there's a deacon and a subdeacon, the subdeacon actually takes the thing uh, and, he, and he holds it in his hand and it's wrapped with the humeral veil, a large, a large cloth like you see at benediction when the priest has the big cloth that covers his hands for benediction. The, the subdeacon would have the same thing and he would have the, the patent hidden under there. So after the offertory of the bread, it would be given to the subdeacon, covered, and he would go and, and uh, stand or kneel, varying at a time, uh, at the foot of the steps. Um, and so either way, there's a hiding of, uh, a hiding of the patent, which stands for, for two things, uh, particularly. One is, is the fact that, that when our blessed Lord uh, came, came to the time of his passion, all the apostles fled, right? And so they, they're, all, they're all scattered, they all hid, right? And so the, the hiding of the patent is the reminder that, that our Lord was abandoned because it's not just him with the apostles sitting there on the corporal, it's him by himself. The apostles are hidden behind, right? And so it's kind of a, that reminder of that reality that, that Christ was alone uh, in his passion. I mean, you know that, that Our Lady and, and, and St. John and Mary Magdalene were there, but Really, it was kind of Christ in, in, a, in a unique loneliness that, that could be present there. And then also, in addition to the apostles fleeing our Lord uh, and the blessed and, and the, the, the passion of the Lord, it's also a, a fact, and this one kind of more vividly um, presented before uh, with the subdeacon, is because when the subdeacon holds the, holds the patent, uh, he holds it before his eyes. Uh, and so he, he holds it up, and so usually, because it takes a long time, you're there for like half the Eucharistic prayer, the, no, the whole Eucharistic prayer. And so there's a lot of time. So usually the deacon will have kind of one arm rest against <laughs> against the other arm, holding his his left arm, his left arm holding up his right arm, uh, and the right arm, the right hand, holding the patent before his face. And it would all be, of course, covered in veils. And so it be it would be before his face. Uh, and so with that more 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 clearly shows is part of the, the fact of, of the unbelievers who, although these things were right before their eyes, they were unable to see. Like it was, it was veiled to their eyes. It was veiled to their understanding. Like the Jewish people who, who saw Jesus on the cross and yet their eyes were unable to see. The Pharisees, the scribes, Sadducees, these people who, who, who heard all of these miraculous things, these incredible things, people who saw the miracles and yet their hearts were hardened against him is they, they were unable to see. Right? They couldn't see the Lord for who he truly was. Their eyes were veiled. Uh, and so, so this is for the Jewish people as well as all unbelievers in Christ that the, the, the covering of the patent is a reminder that, that there are those who are veiled. There are those who are unable to see Christ because they're hidden behind the veil, uh, whether under the corporal or behind the humeral veil itself. Um, but the good news is at some point it comes back out. Right. And so that's the, that's the hope that we have uh, liturgically. 
the hope that, that one day um, there will be a restoration, the veil will be lifted, and all will be able to see and know our Lord. So that is the actions of the, uh, the offertory of the bread. So continuing from there, uh, again, the priest, after he places the patent under the corporal, he proceeds and he, he, uh, he, takes, the, he takes the chalice, which has the, the purificator, the, the, cloth, uh, the cloth on top of it to, to, to keep everything clean, the, the ecclesial napkin, so to speak. Um, and he takes it and usually will kind of wipe out the inside of the chalice because you never know what's inside. Because um, truth be told, I've had um, a whole variety of insects wind up in my chalice at some point. And so it's good to know that before uh, putting water, wine and water in there rather than after. Uh, and so you can kind of clean it out real quick, set it on the altar, and then you go off to the side to receive the bread or to receive the wine and the water from the server. So you pour in a generous amount of wine, a little drip of water, a little drop of water, um, and you say the following prayer. This is the Deus Qui Humane. Uh, so, O God, who in a wonderful manner didst create and ennoble human nature, and still more wonderfully has renewed it, grant that by the mystery of this water and wine we may be made partakers of his divinity, who vouchsafe to become partaker of our humanity. Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. And so this, um, this commixture of the wine and the water is in part, you know, people will say that uh, in, in the early days in the church, it was a, a normative thing to mix, to mingle uh, wine and water because the wine would be perhaps more potent than you want. And so uh, you don't want to, you don't want to be, you know, three sheets to the wind uh, by the time you get through the first, the first course of the meal. So you pour, pour a generous amount of water in there and Spaces it out, lowers the alcohol volume or alcohol content, and then you can enjoy you can enjoy it, um, you know, in a in a clean heart and clean spirit. Um, and so this is still observed in in a variety of places in the Holy Land. There's places where they do it. And they point it to other even just regular Western Western cultures and others uh, where young uh, where they they teach the children how to drink wine uh, so as to learn how to drink it responsibly rather than. You know, hold them back, hold them back, hold them back. And when they're 21, they go just hog wild and like bulls out of the bulls out of the chute. Um, and so, uh, in those scenarios, it, it would be a matter of uh, you know parents, you know, having having a little bit of the wine with a lot of water to kind of get them accustomed, perhaps to the taste, to the effect of it, this kind of thing. Uh, and so, um, you know, those are practical considerations that one might have just to to make sure the content doesn't get too high. There is a, a, pres, a prescribed uh, alcohol content for altar wines. It's, I think, between 12 and 20 percent, 12 and 18 percent, somewhere in that range. Um, you can always tell when you get the, the, higher, the higher range because it stings a bit uh, when you consume it. I remember being shocked the first time I went to St. Joseph's Abbey because they, they, had, um, they had the wine out there that was the 18 percent. And, uh, you know, Jack Daniels is 40%. So um, it's, not, it's not as potent as Jack Daniels, but it's half as potent as Jack Daniels. Uh, and so to receive a little bit of it, it's like, ooh, that's, it's got some sting to it, right? It's not your nice, smooth, 
in a smooth white, uh, smooth white spit has has some bite, um, and so you know there's a required amount of of alcohol content that's for wine these days. So this for us would not be so much the case. It's not as if you've got forty percent, you know, <laughs> somehow forty percent alcohol wine, which is basically just whiskey, um, and then you know you don't have to pour it, you don't have to water it down to make it match right. So this is not the case for us. <clears throat> but it is more for the symbolic meaning of things, which is especially emphasized by the prayer here. Uh, o oh God, who in a wonderful manner did create in a noble human nature, and still more wonderfully has renewed it, grant that by the mystery of this water and wine we may become partakers of the divinity who vouchsafe to become partaker of our humanity. Right? And so what, we, what the church has, has always understood that is there are numerous church fathers who speak explicitly about this. The early church fathers understood this with perfect clarity and spoke about it, is that the wine is Christ and the water is us. Uh, and that, that's why it's that we are, we are being brought into him. And that's why it's, it's a little bit, right? So we're, I mean, you know, we don't have to, that he is, <laughs> that he is far greater than us. Um, so it's a little, a little, just a little drop, uh, a drop or two representing our humanity. And that's also why whenever, whenever the, the water and wine are brought forward, uh, the priest pours the wine into the chalice, but he blesses the water first before he puts the water in. It's because, uh, again, this, the fact that a wonderful, it's a wonderful human nature, God created and ennobled us. Um, you know, so by our virtue of our baptism, we've been ennobled, but still wonderfully, more wonderfully has renewed it. Right? And so it's like, you know, it's, it's good, but we're going to bless it because God has renewed it. And so it's, it's even kind of a, a new life being brought to us uh, in that. And so whenever the priest blesses the water, it's, it's kind of analogously blessing the, blessing the faithful, saying that we've become, we've become even higher than we were previously by virtue of our baptism. And so we're able to be immersed in Christ, be a part of Christ by virtue of our baptism. And so uh, all of that in... Just a couple of, a couple of liquids on the altar, right? Uh, Christ and Christ and the faithful, and and so the beautiful, the beauty of it all is, is of course that, whenever you pour the water into the wine, you can't go back and say, oop, no, and I did, I did too much, you know. Let me take some of the water back out. It's not an option. They're, they're together at that point. There's no dividing them. Just in the same as when we are united to Christ. There's no taking us away from nothing to divide us from the nothing to divide us from Christ. You know, and St. Paul, of course, gives us a list of all the things that there's nothing that can separate us from Christ. Um, is, let me ask you, mm-hmm. is, is it wrong to uh, think that with the water and the wine that we're sharing in his divinity in some way through that action? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's okay to think that way? Mm-hmm. Okay. Because when I read that prayer over the years, it's been always associate that when he came, he assumed humanity, his, his divinity became humanity, and then that prayer says, we're hoping by taking the body and blood of Christ that we're sharing in his divinity and giving some of his divinity in our humanity. Yeah, so absolutely. that's okay to think that way. Absolutely, that's okay. the theology of the church. Okay. Uh, St. Athanasius said, God became man so that man could become God. Um, not in the sense of like no, God. No, okay. No, no, no but like, okay. but that's, but that's yeah. the actual sense okay. is, is that we are, that we are consumed, like we are, we are brought into Him, and and so the church in the early church, the church referred to the faithful in heaven as divinized. Okay. Yeah. Um, that that's a process of theosis made God. So it's a really fascinating thing because. 
because you're distinct from God. Yes. But you are you are so totally filled with Him that you are almost indistinguishable from yeah. the All Holy. And I like to view it as we're some substance of God is in us. We're not God. We can never be God. We shouldn't even view ourselves as being a God. But we can. I think I can visualize that mm -hmm. some spiritual part of God becomes within us mm -hmm. without making us a God. So I'm okay with that kind of philosophy. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. We are the branches. He is the vine. Yes. The branches are not the vine, but they have to have the vine in them to be yeah. alive. Yeah. Yeah. Like the vine, like a vine and branches have share that common fluid within. Mm -hmm. Our fluid is the spiritual fluid. Is the way I view that. Is God's substance is a spiritual fluid. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. And so it's it's anticipating what what will shortly happen in communion. The fact that yes. that God becomes man and has flesh, and that we receive it, and mm -hmm. are united to that flesh, you know, and, and thus able to partake in God and be united to God. Uh, and so, yeah, the offertory, these these prayers, they speak the reality of, of our belief and faith. And so, uh, another another thing, neat thing that's that's um, present there that that indicates for the priest uh, that after. Uh, after you pour in the wine, you pour in the water, is the priest is to take the purificator, which he has in his hand, and to, to wipe the inside of the cup. Uh, because, you know, we all know that if you pour something, it can little, little spots, you know, kind of uh, shoot up. And so it's to, to wipe all of those away. Uh, one, to ensure that, that you don't have Christ in the main chalice, and then a little bit of Christ here, a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here, right? So you want to emphasize the unity in the blood, uh, but also, again, because because the chalice is the water and wine brought together, so it's the unity, unity of the blood, unity of Christ present there, but it's also the call for us to be united to Christ. Uh, and and one of the one of the commentators um, speaks about the the wiping away of the extra drops that may be on the side of the the side of the cup of the chalice. As, as a reminder uh, that, that none of us uh, can stay kind of close to Christ but not united to him. We have to be either be in or out. Um, and so the, the little drops, they can't remain there. <laughs> they have to either be in Christ or taken out. Um, and so it's this, this gospel mandate that we have uh, to be able to choose and that, that no one can be, uh, can be you know, kind of you know, one foot in, one foot out. Uh, as regards unity with Christ, and so uh, again, these simple things that are that are present there that are helpful, helpful things for us to pray with uh, and to contemplate these these little things from time to time as the mass is is being offered. So next thing is the offering of the wine, uh, the tibi. We offer thee, O Lord, the chalice of salvation, beseeching thy clemency that in the ascend of the sight of thy divine majesty for the sweet savor, for our own salvation, and for that of the whole world. And so, uh, again, just kind of a similar thing. The priest brings it to the, brings it to the altar, and with eyes, uh, with eyes lifted, uh, offers the prayer, the prayer uh, kind of a similar thing. And then at the end, makes the sign of the cross, places it upon the altar, and then places the pall, the, the square white cloth, places that on top of the chalice, and um, and proceeds with a prayer, and the the pall that that covers things is said to have been initially.
part of the part of the corporal that would have been kind of drawn over as a sort of um, the swaddling cloth. So you put Christ in there, and then the cloth would be covered over the top of it. And so eventually the pall became a separate individual piece of cloth that's an extension of the, of the corporal that's underneath, but to be able to, to cover Christ um, top and bottom in these things. So we have that. And then the priest, uh, after he places the pall upon the chalice, uh, makes a, a profound bow before the altar, placing his hands upon the altar, and prays the in spiritu humilitatis, uh, which is to say in the spirit of humility and with a contrite heart, receive us, O Lord, and grant that the sacrifice which we offer this day in thy sight may be pleasing unto thee, O Lord God. And so, one, it's, it's um, a profound bow, uh, so it's, you know, to you go as low as you can uh, for, for the praying of this, of this particular prayer. Uh, because it's supposed to be um, a correlation that, that, okay, we've offered the bread, the bread's on the altar, we've offered the wine, the wine's on the altar, now we have to offer ourselves, um, and now we're on the altar. So the priest touches the altar at this point. So there are various times where the priest is, is not to touch the altar, and times where you make a, low, a profound bow, but you don't touch. Uh, you just keep your hands slightly elevated uh, over the altar an inch or two. Um, but here, the priest places his hands upon the altar, and bows and prays that particular prayer. And so in a sense, it's kind of offering the bread, offering the wine, and then offering ourselves symbolically as we're praying, like, Lord, that these, that these gifts might be found pleasing in your sight. And then from there, he stands back up and then you know, does a, a kind of a circle, circle with the hands, the Veni Sanctificator, and offers the blessing upon the bread and the wine. Uh, and so this is, it's kind of an interesting thing because in the, uh, in the Eastern, in Eastern liturgies, uh, so always there's the, this is a term, the, the epiclesis. Epiclesis is the, is the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the gifts. Uh, and so in the Eastern rites, I think exclusively, like all the Eastern rites, the epiclesis is, is during the Eucharistic prayer, is during the canon, um, whatever, whatever term they would describe it as. But it's during the, the lengthy prayer of the, of the consecration like we have in the sacred liturgy. Uh, and so whenever, um, whenever the reforms of the Second Vatican Council came, there was, there was actually a great discussion about when is the epiclesis for the canon because there's never, there's never a praying of like invoc invocation of the Holy Spirit during the canon itself, where like you're laying hands, there's a laying on of hands, uh, but at that one it's a sign of, of the sins being placed upon our Lord essentially, uh, like the scapegoat, where the, the priest would lay hands upon the scapegoat um, to be able to make it the offering, make it the sacrificial offering to God. And so, uh, but there wasn't an epiclesis. And so, you know, if you, if you go to the Nova Sordo Masses, Eucharistic Prayer 2, Eucharistic Prayer 3, Eucharistic Prayer 4, it all speaks about, you know, send forth your Holy Spirit, and the priest lays his hands over the offering. And, uh, and so the thought was, was that, okay, well, we need to have the, the epiclesis during, during the canon, but, but in fact, uh, the Romans, uh, our, our Roman heritage, the epiclesis would be understood as to being before the canon. So this is what the Veni Sanctificator is. It's the praying of the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's come, O sanctifier, almighty and eternal God, and bless the priest blesses, right? Um, and bless the sacrifice prepared for thy holy name. 
And so we're praying specifically that the Holy Spirit would come and descend upon the gifts. And so um, that's, uh, I think that's, that's an important piece because, again, the commentators reflecting on this is, uh, again, seeing so much of, of what's happened on the altar, not only through the lens of the Paschal mystery of the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ, but also through the incarnation of our Lord, is um, it's not as if uh, Jesus was born and the Holy Spirit was like simultaneously descending upon Our Lady, all right? And we know that, that, that Our Lady received the word, the Holy Spirit descended upon her, and then the Lord was made, made flesh in her womb. And so this is kind of how we, how we really understand it uh, as Romans, is that, that this prayer was for us uh, and is for us in the traditional rite. It's the place where the Spirit descends at that point, and then soon will follow the, um, the actual incarnation the incarnation of, of our Lord there upon the altar. Uh, in, the, in the new rite, uh, the Veni Sanctificator has been removed uh, and the Epiclesis has been um, basically kind of imposed in a sense, like hands being placed upon it um, at, a, at a different part in the liturgy. And actually the prayer follows, the prayer where the priest extends hands in the new rite is the prayer after the one where the priest extends in the old rite. And so, if ever it seems that Father Brent has extended his hands in the new rite a little bit too soon, and he's holding them there much longer than normal, it's because he also celebrates the old rite, and just by natural natural sense, like your, I don't know, like your spiritual sense just says, all right, this is the part where you lay hands. And then you realize, like, nope, this is not the part, but we're already doing it, so we're just going to keep riding this pony. <laughs> Um, so it's kind of the kind of the thing there, but the Veni Sanctificator is the, is the invocation of the Holy Spirit to come and descend upon the gifts. He who is the the means by which the incarnation took place. Uh, so much the same with us also, understanding this great mystery that it's that it's Him and by Him uh, that that the consecration of these gifts comes to pass. The next uh, would be the insensation of the gifts, and so we don't uh, we don't have this. Quite often uh, at this point, but hopefully we'll begin to have it a bit more frequently soon. So the insensation of the gifts. So after after the sanctificator, the priest will uh, will turn, and then the servers would or the the thurifer and and, um, and boat bearer Navicularius. It's a cool name, Navicularius, the, the man that holds the boat. Um, they come forward to um, to prepare the incense, and then the incense is is offered. Uh, at the altar and to be able to bless the gifts. And so uh, you, make, you make the sign of the cross three times over the gifts, then you have three swings, uh, and then, and then you're, you've offered the gifts, uh, you've incensed them, uh, and then you would genuflect. And there's a very precise pattern that's followed. It's, you know, uh, the, the, the swings to the cross, relics on the, re on the left, relics on the right, then you incense the altar in the back, on the side, and the front. Genuflect the middle, in the back, in the side, in the front, in the bottom, and then in the bottom. And then you give it away. Uh, so it's very, there's neat little diagrams in the front of the, the front of the altar missile that just have like an altar set up with relics in the cross. And it's like point number one, point number two, number three, swing number four, swing number five. And it just has numbers with arrows all over the, all over the, the sanctuary for all the places that you have to incense and in what order. Uh, so it's uh, a little church of nerd thing where you get excited about 
things where it tells you, this is the 22nd place where you instant stuff. How exciting. Um, right, and so, but uh, all these things are, are brought together. And so it's, it's one remembering that, that incense is, is for, um, for things that are to be consecrated or things that already belong to the good Lord. Uh, so the gifts are the gifts are incensed, and then right it's the cross, the relics of the saints, it's the altar, it's the priest, it's the servers, it's the faithful, right? So all these everything that's incensed, uh, and if you do it at different times of the mass, right, the the, the altar is incensed at the beginning, the go- the the gospel is incensed uh, at the gospel, the priest or not the so yeah everything during the the offertory the the Lord during the consecration. So anything that is Christ or Christ's uh, is incensed in the sacred liturgy at that point. And kind of in the, in the proper, uh, proper descending uh, hierarchical order. And so uh, the incense is a reminder that, that all of these things are Christ or Christ's and uh, that, that, uh, that we, are, we are holy things who belong to the Lord. And also, one of the neat, one of the neat things is the, there are nine, uh, so the three signs of the cross, there's three swings, uh, which would be six times the, the thurible crosses over the, the bread and the wine, the chalice, um, and then the three, the three swings around it. So it's nine times that, that the thurible kind of passes in conjunction with the gifts. And so one of the commentators highlighted the fact that, that right, there are nine swings, there are nine choirs of angels who are surrounding us uh, as we enter into the heavens to be able to worship the good Lord, and it's a nice, a nice reminder, right? So, thanks, man. What is the, um, when they do the incense for the faithful, what is our posture? Are we supposed to make the sign of the cross or just bow or do nothing? Um, no, you would stand uh, whenever the server is coming to the, to the head of the sanctuary, uh, you would stand Whenever the server bows, you would bow, and then they'll usually get three single swings, uh, one to the center, one to the left, one to the right, and you would just bow again. And so there's no, no sign of the cross or anything at that point. It was just, just bows. Um, bows all around. And so uh, the next piece would be the, the lavabo. So if, if, we're, if we're not having incense, the priest does the venus sanctificator, and immediately goes to the side of the altar, the epistle side of the altar, to do the, the washing of hands, the lavabo, uh, which is um, it's the words of the prayer. Um, so he goes, uh, again, goes, washes his hands, uh, in part because in the early church, if you just received um, eggs and animals and every kind of who knows what, it's a good time to wash your hands. Uh, and, uh, but also, it's a good time to wash hands whenever, um, whenever you have just offered incense to know that uh, it's kind of gummy. And so the smoke and the soot and things may be, may be on your hands uh, as well. And so just to, to kind of clean, clean those things. So some of it's a, a practical consideration because, you know, there's, there's uh, very often practical things for us to take into account as we pray with the, the deeper spiritual things. But even more so, the, the spiritual reality of things. And so the priest goes to the, he goes to the side um, and prays the lavabo. Excuse me. Which is to say... Uh, I will wash my hands among the innocent and will compass thy altar, O Lord. 
that I may hear the voice of thy praise and tell of thy wondrous works. I have loved, O Lord, the beauty of thy house and the place that thy glory dwelleth. Take not away my soul, O God, with the wicked, nor my life with men of blood, in whose hands are iniquities. Their right hand is filled with gifts. But as for me, I have walked in my innocence. Redeem me and have mercy on me. My foot hath stood in the direct way in the churches. I will bless thee, O Lord, and the glory be what follow. So this is uh, one of the Psalms uh, is, is taken here. Is it Psalm 25? Yeah, Psalm 25. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, it's obviously the washing of hands, but even more so in this recognition of, of let, me be, let me be a pure heart, let me be numbered among the innocent, not taken away with the wicked. My hands not, not given over, not full, of, not full of things, but emptied, uh, so that, that you may come and, and, and fill. Uh, so all these things take place, uh, and, and in conjunction with that, um, we also recognize uh, the, other, the other place where, there's a, where there are washings uh, would be particularly at the Last Supper with the, the Lord and the apostles as he goes around and, and washes their feet. Um, and and Peter, Peter says, you will never wash my feet. <laughs> and the Lord says, if I don't wash your feet, you will have no part with me. You can't partake of this if you don't let me wash your feet. And so Peter says, but not only my feet, but my hands and head as well, right? <laughs> it was like, let's go all in. You know, I, want to, I want in on this thing. You, know, he's, he's, you kind of hear the zeal of Peter in all of this. And our Lord says, no, <laughs> this is good. Like, Calm down, Peter. Um, in so many ways. But, but, but interestingly, St. Thomas Aquinas um, kind of speaks to this fact of, of like, okay, well, we have the washing, the washing of the hands. And he said, he said, Truly, to, to, to know the mystery of, the, of what's taking place, it would be more fitting that the priest would, would have his feet washed prior to celebrating the canon. He says, but that's not very practical, uh, and, and it is fitting for us to, to wash the hands as well, um, because we, we speak, speak of things as, as, right, as the work of our hands, uh, and so, you know, something at hand. And so the hand is, is kind of indicative of, of the action of life. Uh, and so in so many ways, St. Thomas saying, it would be better if we washed feet, but, you know, hands work as well. So it's kind of an interesting, interesting thing hearing, <laughs> hearing St. Thomas suggest that we wash feet every Mass. Um, so, yes, ma'am. No, but one thing I find interesting is in the Gospel of John, how um, John has Pontius Pilate. In some ways, imitating the priest, mm -hmm. you know, because he says, "Behold, the lamb, uh, you know, behold him, behold him." Yeah. You know, and then he washes his hands. Mm -hmm. you know, so. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and I, and I think we can certainly kind of pray with that too, of of you know that, that we that it not be that his blood would not be on us uh, in a sense of condemnation, but in a sense of of justice, um, of holiness, because we want his blood to be on us. And the sense of purifying us, uh, but we don't want to be. We don't want to be. We don't want to have His blood in the sense of of being unrighteous, and in that sense. So that's what Pilate was kind of saying. Like, look, this is this is the wicked. Y'all are. You want this. I don't want this. Uh, in so many ways. Um, so yeah, we can certainly certainly pray with that same that same reality. Um, kind of washing the hands. So. Uh, after, 
after the, uh, the 10 minutes that it takes Father Brent to dry his hands, because he's just obsessive about water being on his hands at Mass. Uh, <laughs> you finally return to the center uh, and, uh, and make, make another, another profound bow, um, praying this time the, the Sushipe Sancta Trinitas. Uh, so the first time is the Sushipe Sancta Pater, offering with the Sushipe to the Father, and this one now to the Sacred Trinity. And so here is, is uh, again, a bowing low, um, placing one's hands upon the altar to be able to pray. Uh, and the priest prays, Receive, O Holy Trinity, this oblation which we make to thee, in remembrance of the passion, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in honor of the Blessed Mary, of her Virgin, of Blessed John the Apostle, the Holy Apostles, Peter and Paul, of these, uh, the martyrs, uh, the, the priest says, Eddie Storm is like, of these, is the, the relics of the saints <laughs> uh, that are there in the altar, uh, and of all the saints, uh, that it may avail to their honor and our salvation, they may vouchsafe to intercede for us in heaven, whose memory we now keep on earth, through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, and so this one, of course, uh, uh, rings, rings, uh, should ring some bells with us as far as the confidior, uh, invoking the, all the saints, uh, specifically in that order, uh, our Blessed Mother, John the Baptist, Peter and Paul, etc. Um, being able to receive them, to pray that, uh, that our sacrifice would be truly pleasing to the Lord um, and that uh, the saints who we're reminded of are all around us and will continue to be praying with us and praying for us. And also, um, one of the, the commentators was reflecting on, on the fact of, of this, this then having having, um, again, kind of putting back on the, the lens of Paschal mystery is that whenever our Lord went to the, the Last Supper, you know, they, it was the, the unleavened bread, the washing of the feet, uh, and then coming back after that, it was, you know, that, we know that after the Last Supper, they, they went out to sing a psalm. Uh, they sang the Hallel Psalms as they were on their way to Gethsemane. And at Gethsemane, the, the Lord took them aside and went to go pray. Peter, James, and John took them aside, went to go pray, and then ultimately at the end was, was taken, uh, taken hostage, taken captive, and um, brought to his trial. And so we can see in this that after the bread and the, the washing of hands have already happened, the, the Last Supper, so to speak, um, that, that the Lord goes and, and bows down once again. This time it's Christ who bows down under the weight of the cross. Uh, it's Christ who bows down under the weight of of like the agony, it's essentially kind of like the agony in the garden type of moment, uh, where our Lord is is acknowledging like the the need uh, the need for God's for God's strength um, in the midst of His humanity to bear to bear this, and so we turn to the saints, asking for asking for their help uh, to strengthen us to be with us as we offer this holy mystery. So. Uh, Bowing low, the priest prays the various prayers, reverences the altar with a kiss, because any time the priest turns to address the people, he kisses the altar first, because he, he, speaks, he speaks to them as Christ speaking to them, so he kisses Christ the altar first, and then turns to speak that the words of Christ may be coming forth from his mouth. And he says, Orate fratres, and turns back around, continues the rest of it quietly. And uh, with this, uh, it is... Again, kind of keeping in mind our, our Lord in the agony in the garden of how he, he's praying, he's praying, he's praying, and he goes back and he stops and, 
you know, it goes back to Peter, James, and John. They're like, stay awake, you know, pray. He goes back, and he comes back, pray. <laughs> and a third time, you know, are you still sleeping? Pray, right? And so we can, we can understand the Orate Fratres as, as a sort of, as a, a recognition of Gethsemane, that our Lord, that, that the passion's about to happen, the crucifix is about to happen, the crucifix, the, the, the death and resurrection, or the death of our Lord is about to happen right before our very eyes. And pray, 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 right? And so um, the priest turning and saying, pray, brother, and pray, pray, brother, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God the Father Almighty. And of course, we all pray the sacrifice of your hands will be pleasing to the glory, praise and glory of his name, to our benefit and that of all of his holy church. And so uh, we have that, that injunction for us to be able to pray. It's the only time the priest makes the full circle. So every other time the priest turns, uh, turns by his right and then turns back by his left. He doesn't complete the circle. Uh, this is the only time where the priest turns and then he, com- he completes the whole circle to turn back to the altar. Um, and I'm sure there are greater reasons for this. Uh, but the only one that I, that I noticed was uh, one of of a mention in the Psalms um, that I have gone round and have offered up a sacrifice of jubilation is, um, I forget which Psalm it was, but, and so it was like the, the going around to gather up a, the hymn of praise, a Psalm of jubilation, sacrifice of jubilation, and so uh, And so, and after this, the servers make their response, and the servers make the response, of course, in there. And at the end, um, the secret which is where we started, right? The Dominus Fobiscum Conspiratituo Oremus. And now we're finally Oremus. <laughs> we're finally praying um, as, the collective, as the collective community in that particular part. So we offer the, the secret, which is the, the prayer for the day. Uh, and uh, it's, it's sometimes said that it's secret because it's, it's quiet because it's the secret or it's the secret because it's quiet uh, or some, some combination thereof. Um, it seems rather that it's quiet because nearly everything at that time is quiet. Uh, so it's a fitting kind of continuation of it. Uh, so the, the majority of the priest prayers at that point are, are, said, are said quietly. But also um, that it's the, the, the word secret um, seems historically to refer more to the, the Roman canon, uh, the long Eucharistic prayer prayed quietly. Uh, and, the, and this prayer will be the, the super secreta, which is the prayer before the, the prayer before the secret one. Um, and so it just became short to the secret um, secreta. So after the secret, uh, you end at per omnia secula seculorum. And everyone stands. Uh, or if you've, if you've been incensed already, you're already standing. Um, and off we go into the preface which will lead us directly into the canon. And we'll pick up there next time. <clears throat> Questions? Yes, ma'am. Why did the servers kiss the, uh, the lion? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the, the kisses, they should be more numerous in the liturgy. Uh, we just haven't, we haven't broached that subject yet. Um, but the rep, the, the, the kisses are because really a recognition that the priest is Christ. And so anytime things are given to him or taken from him, uh, both he and the item are kissed. And so theoretically, it should happen numerous times during the Mass. Like whenever at the beginning, um, whenever I take off my Beretta and hand it to the server, they should, 
they should kiss my hand, kiss the bread and take it from me and bring it to the side. Or whenever they give me the spoon for the incense, they should, they should kiss the spoon, kiss my hand, give me the spoon. I put the incense in, and then when I hand it back, they kiss my hand, take the spoon, kiss the spoon, and put it back. Uh, so there's always, um, you know, whether you're receiving or giving it, you kiss the item in the hand of the priest because it's Christ who you're serving at that point. Um, for a lot of people, that seems weird. Um, and so... Uh, the, I was thinking it has something to do with like the cupbearer and the king and, the, uh, you know, mm-hmm. they kept the drink and wine piece of something. No, it's... it's uh, like I said they, they kiss it, but they should be kissing my hand too. And they should be kissing it before they give it to me uh, as well. And so, like I said, all the, all the different times of Mass... That, uh, that ordinarily would be done. But um, yeah, I came in in the midst of COVID and kissing things, kissing hands is, <laughs> whew, you know, it's, so like to um, perhaps one day. I'll have to see if the servers are up to, uh, up to kissing my hands. And then uh, and if, they're, if they're agreeable with that, I'll see if they'll kiss my feet too. We'll just kind of you know, see how far we can take it. Maybe not, but... Um, I think it would really just point out that you are in persona Christi. Yeah. yeah. So that would yeah, make sense. I agree. Yeah. yeah, so one day. One day we'll get there. We'll break out the osculati, as they are called. So. Okay. I have a, a question about that. So mm-hmm. what, it's kind of confusing to me sometimes because if you're standing in the person of Christ, but then in a prayer like in the... Uh, the prayer of the Holy Trinity, mm-hmm. you're offering to the Trinity the, in the person of Christ, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know, I guess it's just kind of confusing. So is it always, are you always speaking in the first person as Christ as you're saying these prayers, or is there kind of both? Yes and no. Okay. I mean, it's, it's kind of a both, um, and that's where we have to have our bifocals on, uh, in that sense, is, is the priest is simultaneously he is, he is Christ to the people, but he's also the people to Christ. Uh, and so he's, he's like the strange, the strange presence where, where Christ and the faithful are kind of met. Okay. Um, and so it's, it's Christ who's speaking, but also Christ is receiving it. Just in, in a similar manner as, as, um, as God gave us the, the words of the Psalms. So he gave them to us, but then we say them back to him. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's kind of like the Lord, the Lord allows those kind of exchanges. Um, yeah, it is. You know, and I've heard, I've heard numerous reflections about like the, the mystery of of uh, like in consecration. You know, this is my body, you know, given up for you, uh, and recognizing that, that that obviously primarily refers to Christ, and is his mystical body or not his mystical body his, his true body um, but but also from the priest in his own humanity needs to to say the same like acknowledging that that you know I as as Christ himself as Ipse Christus um, at mass and in my priesthood like I need to offer myself this as well this is a, this is my body um you know, and so it's kind of a both in a weird sense, um, because yeah, I mean, all the all the prayers in the mass 
Um, you know, some are offered to the Father, some are, are to the Son, some are to the Holy Spirit, some are through, through, <laughs> through two or more of them. And <laughs> so, like, there's all kinds of, um, like, as far as as far as that, there's not, um, it's not crisp and clean breaks. Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, you're in persona Christi here, but you're in persona ecclesia here. Like, it would be a, it's kind of. Yeah, the both of them, where one becomes more prominent, I guess, in a certain time. Right. And so, like, in the, in Christ's sacrifice, I guess that's another thing that's, I'm trying to, like, connect the dots, like, because he's, he's acting as a priest when he's on the cross, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's just, like, who's presiding over the sacrifice, you know, it's like, Where's the altar? Is the cross the altar? You know, mm-hmm. like, okay. yeah. I mean, the the was it one of the one of the prefaces? I think it's the I think it's in the new rite, but but one of the prefaces certainly speaks to the reality, and you know, and, and I'm sure it's contained in the fathers, is that Christ is is the priest, the altar, and the Lamb of sacrifice. Okay. Uh, so he's he's the one offering. Uh, so he's the priest. He's the he's the the Lamb uh, who is offered. He, he's the altar where it takes place. Like his body is the place where it takes place, but also the, also the altar of the cross. Yeah. Um, and so he is all of those things simultaneously. Yeah. Okay. Um, because, you know, it's like he says, no one takes my life from me. And, you know, I choose to lay my life down myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, that's his, his high priestly act is laying down his life, sacrificing himself in his body. For us, yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, and that's why that's why Archbishop Sheen and many other holy bishops and priests always they like to remind priests, you are not just priest, you are priest and victim. Yeah. If you are supposed to be Christ, your life should be victim. You should suffer. Uh, so all these priests who like whenever whenever it gets too tough, they just bow out and go live their own life. They're like, well, you, you had the priesthood part down, but you forgot there was the other side of the coin. <laughs> Which is like there's there's suffering here. Like you're supposed to be a victim. You're supposed to have the sufferings, and like to know that is to be able to embrace that, um, as Christ Himself did to, to choose to offer Himself. Um, Could you elaborate on the part where um, pray that our my sacrifice and yours? Mm-hmm. I pray um, during the offertory. Um, Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. So it's the priest saying, you know, my sacrifice and yours is the acknowledgement that it's not just Father doing his thing, and that the sacrifice is only his, and 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 that's all. But it's because uh, again, the the mass is is necessarily a communal communal thing, even if no one else is there. Angels, angels and saints are there, but like to to pray that that our sacrifice, which is exactly that, it's the suffering, the it's the offering of the bread and the wine for short, uh, but it's also all the other things that we place on the platen, paten, place in a chalice. Those things, like you said, ourselves, our intentions, our needs, other people, all of that. Uh, yeah, but all of that will be purified and pleasing. My other question was, from that book I saw there was a cross 
Yeah, so typically, uh, just on, on the chalice itself, um, and one of, the, one of the fathers had a, had a, uh, a little theology even of the chalice, like the cup is the tomb, the pall is the stone rolled in front of it uh, type of thing. But, but yeah, there's usually a cross at the base of the chalice, some more on it, uh, and that uh, you know certainly is a reminder that this is that this is this is the cross, this is the crucifixion um, here before our eyes. Uh, it also typically serves as as just a good visual visual cue. It's pointed typically it's pointed towards the priest, and so the priest knows that this is where I consume the precious blood, and and so it's always. Um, on a practical level, it's a good, helpful thing to know. <laughs> How many times have I spun the chalice as I'm cleaning it, or like to make sure it lands at the right spot and like that it's you know, properly oriented and these kinds of things, which is really just good for people who are kind of obsessive like myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it intentionally has that, and, and the cross. I mean, the, the chalice too. Uh, each of the each of the vessels, just as the vestments, they each have their own things that where they will have kind of a theology to them to some degree. Uh, so a lot of times you'll see chalices with the words of consecration uh, kind of engraved around it. Uh, or you'll have images of, of these things or um, you know, images of, of the life of our Lord or the shedding of his precious blood or um, any number of things uh, that are present there, often precious stones or um, the chalice itself of precious metal. Because it's, it's it's the precious blood. So you treat it with something better than a solo cup. Um, that you have a, a fitting a fitting place for the king. So. I have a question about. Uh, I know this is probably going to be in the next episode about the receiving the Eucharist, but I've always wondered um, after we receive the host, receive Jesus. How long does it take for it to actually break down? Are we supposed to be staying in the church for like 15 minutes after? Or? I've heard. I, I read a little bit about that. And it, yeah. I heard something that like biologically, like food, when it enters in the stomach, if the stomach is empty, all things, all things stay the same, that it takes like eight to 10 minutes be consumed or something by the acids in ten, one's stomach? 10 to 15 is what is I've read. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Ten, yeah. 10 minutes is a good... Yeah, yeah. so somewhere but around it there. It totally diffuses and is going on from here. Yeah. yeah. And so the, system. Yeah, the... The Eucharistic presence ceases to be present when the accidents of the, of the bread and wine no longer are present. Um... <laughs> Which is to say, if it's not bread or wine, uh, substantial, like um, not not substantial, accidentally, like if it doesn't look like it, if it's not it, it's not Christ because it's been consumed. And that's why, uh, like if you if if you were to have like a host fall on the floor or somebody somebody received and then went back to the pew and got sick and threw up, then if it's if it's still discernibly Christ, then you know it's gathered up and then placed in water. Um, and the water turns the bread into not bread anymore. So you leave it in you leave it in water for a little while, and then the Eucharistic presence of Christ ceases to be present at some point. 
I'll leave that to God as to when exactly that happens. Um, <laughs> he can turn it into yeah. himself. Yeah. 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 Do your thing. Um, and so, and then, and then that would still be, be put down in this aquarium, a special sink reserved for, for holy things. Um, but, but yeah, so usually, usually 10, I said 10, 15 minutes, I guess. And that's why, that's part of why I like the traditional rite too is, is after you receive, you got some longer time, you got some extra prayers, you got the prayers at the end, you got... That's why <laughs> so, you get yeah, to set up toward the front. Yeah, it's going to, yeah, yeah. Get, you, get your, your, uh, your Eucharistic clock going. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, but yeah, so, but that's, that's a good thing to, to be mindful of, to be aware of. It always breaks my heart when people receive and then uh, kind of just run out the door. And like, you know, I've heard... Um, it was a story of one of the saints. It's a, it's a thing a saint would do. Um, that somebody did that, and they told the two candle, the two altar servers, to take candles and follow them, because it was Christ going out into the street. <laughs> they were like, "What are you doing?" They're like, "Christ is still within you." Uh, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you know, gotta love the gotta love the saints. So, very good. So next time we'll. Um, We'll get into the preface and um, and the Eucharistic prayer, the Roman Canon, and I'll see if that can be done in one shot. If not, there's, there's a lot to it. So um, literally, there's an entire book of 400 pages written on just that. Um, have you delved into that book yet? I have not. <laughs> I have not. So um, one day, one day. So I'm really enjoying this. This is just. Explaining so much, you know, every little detail and thing has significance and a reason behind it. Mm -hmm. It's not just random. There is, as Father Jackson said, there is nothing superfluous, (laughs) nothing extra. So, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go peace. Good night. Thank you all.